I acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which this podcast was recorded, and I pay my respects to elders past, present and emerging. This is Making a Difference, a podcast about people who are making change happen. On the show, you'll hear from people who are making a difference on a day-to-day basis, from the local level in their communities to change on a global scale. You'll learn what makes them tick and the values that are driving their actions. I'm your host, Steve Cooper. In this special two-part podcast, we travel from Melbourne, Australia to Hartford, Connecticut to talk with Thomas Clinch of Civic Mind. In the first episode, we talk about Hartford's storied history, including its dark underbelly. We talk about sport and how it's organised, including a reference to the famous New England Patriots, and we talk social enterprise and social capital. We also start to unpack the saga of Dillon Stadium, which has led Thomas into legal action with his local city council. Thomas Clinch, great to talk to you. Welcome. I'm calling from Melbourne, Australia. You're in Hartford, Connecticut. How did we meet? Well, LinkedIn and this idea that we are both civic-minded. That's really how we connected, right? Well, I suppose that's true because we both have a business called Civic Mind. You're in Connecticut since, I believe, 2011? 2011, yeah. I started out right out of college. This idea that creativity, collaboration is how you build great communities. I grew up in a suburban area and thought to start a business in a big city where there's more collaboration, more resources, and that's how you solve systemic problems. So that's how Civic Mind started. And I don't usually talk about me on these, but just for completeness, I started in 2013 and mine was from a good governance point of view that being civic minded is good governance, good community outcomes. So have you thought about the fact that had you had the foresight to register your business name in Australia, we wouldn't be talking because that name wouldn't have been available to you. That's right. And what happened was you used civic mind as your employer and it was my civic mind. And I was like, who's my new coworker? (laughs) I was trying to ghost myself onto your payroll. (laughs) Obviously. No, we'll blame ineptitude for that one. Tell me about Civic Mind. What do you do with your work? You've touched on collaboration. How do you make that into a business? Over the last 10 years, it's evolved in a place where it became more clear. It started off a place very abstractly, right? Like, let's all get together and solve our problems together. Very idealistic, semi-naive. The idea that has evolved to be a place where like social enterprise to social impact. Social enterprise is it was all in vogue when I started, and it's really evolved into a business structure in America now more than it's evolved into like an ethos where social impact is a fundamental philosophy. It's almost an evolution of the community relations department of a company. Social impact is now an operating model, right? So can we go back and just unpack that a little? So social impact yeah. is the effect, if you like. Social enterprise, is that the way that an enterprise might do business? I look at social enterprises, how you structure your business, whether you're for-profit, non-profit, B Corp, hybrid, the social enterprise nature is more what matters and how you structure your business. Social impact is how your people and culture operate, how you fundamentally conduct yourself. The way that I actually write about it is that social impact is how brand expresses their values. Coaching these distinctions and these nuances is how my business has evolved. And a part of that is understanding my own thinking on it. Can you just talk a little bit about, in some more detail about what you're doing? Yes. I will say it's always a work in progress because civics is a work in progress. It's inherently messy. And being from America, we could talk about that. 
at length right now. Democracy is in crisis here. In the commercial space, that really turns into opportunity. And leading with your values is now a competitive advantage. So what my business really does is we create nonprofit programs that express our values and build our audience while also then consulting with other companies of how they can do similar things. So it really does come down to where companies live on this spectrum. And I suppose quite disrupted time. The way that you do that work becomes quite disrupted or organic then. I did start out in a place where I was strictly doing client work and I fast learned I did not enjoy client work at all. And the reason why was in creative space, in values-driven work, you get under the hood with somebody, with an organization, and what they thought they wanted isn't actually what they wanted or what they thought the problem was isn't actually the problem. So there's lots of names for this. One of them is scope creep. You end up in this place where you're hired to do one job and you need to do another. It turns into a mess and then you have these fractured relationships. I stopped soliciting clients and I reoriented my own business where I was like, you know what? I'm just going to create what social impact looks like to me, these different types of programs and use that as how I do things and model that to other people. And on the sustainability side, those programs make the business sustainable so I can be very selective about who I work with too. So not to get under the hood of my own business, but that's <laughs> none of this is easy. If you're in a for-profit company, if you're in philanthropy, nonprofit, depending on whatever sector you're in, a lot of this language now we're international jargon. Can we just go back a step and just describe sure. Hartford, Connecticut? What's your kind of elevator pitch? Describe Hartford. Hartford's a really interesting place. Connecticut in general, its primary marketing today is we are between Boston and New York. That's fundamentally how we culturally identify ourselves. The interesting thing about Hartford is it's in what is coined the New England Knowledge Corridor, which is Amherst, Massachusetts to New Haven, Connecticut. There's 210,000 college students, a number of major universities, University of Massachusetts, University of Connecticut, Yale, Quinnipiac, Wesleyan, all wonderful schools. Connecticut tries to market itself as a destination for workforce development. We're a very educated population, very progressive. At the same time, all of our cities are 75% black and brown communities, yet we have primarily white mayors. So there's all of this really unspoken socioeconomic divide. The other part of Connecticut, just in general, is we're a very opportunistic state. Military is a big business for us. Insurance is a big business for us. Financial services are a big business for us. Capitalism is our thing. And it works for some people, but not most people. Connecticut is kind of comfortably complacent in this space. We profit on the backs of the low and middle class in a way that, depending on how informed and engaged you are, is deeply uncomfortable. Connecticut and Hartford has a rich history with industry going back to the, at least the mid-1800s. How do you describe that progression? Hartford has done some really remarkable things. My favorite story is about Pope Bicycle. What I learned about Pope Bicycle was how it was actually connected to a feminist movement, women's liberation. What the bicycle actually represented was the first time women were able to leave the house without a horse. 
right? Wow. <laughs> so it's like, it's really crazy to think about, right? Yeah. This is the first time women had the independence to just go as wherever a bike could take them and not need a horse. What that ended up turning into was the invention of pants for women, because at the time they couldn't wear these long colonial dresses anymore and get on a bicycle. I mean, I don't know if Hartford fully claims this, but in Hartford, we claim this, that we invented pants and does speak to Connecticut being very opportunistic to say something like that on the backs of inventing the bike. So we invented women's pants and independence for women, depending on who you ask. It's a different horror story, and that is the legacy of Sam Colt. So Sam Colt, inventor of Colt firearms, munitions, helped see the howitzer Gatling gun type he was responsible for making Connecticut. He lives in this mythology of a hero of Harvard. So Sam Colt sold guns to the North and the South during the Civil War. Locally, there are advocates who are saying Sam Colt was actually a war criminal. And we have parks named after him. We have neighborhoods named after him, statues of him. He certainly has this mythology here. With more education, more people are realizing guy wasn't a great dude. And the deeper you get into even the neighborhood, a lot of the neighborhood was built by him, by the factories, and his workers lived there. Well, he would charge his workers right out of their paychecks rent to live in the buildings he built. And he would monitor how they voted and secured contracts through bribery and just wasn't really a good dude. So Harford has a very complex history that you really can't talk about Connecticut without talking about race and class. You just absolutely can't. We'll come back to Colt Park shortly. Let's move on. But Mark Twain and Harriet Beecher Stowe, storied former citizens, presumably. Yeah, I mean, both of them are also live in mythology here. We have statues of both here, and rightfully so. Those are our pride points, really. But as intellectual curiosity has waned, the level of influence and engagement in those two has also waned. Could I posit something? I'm from the other side of the world. Yeah, and please. Mark Twain, on a bit of a fundraiser, rather famously visited Australia and has some great quotes. But I think as a 16 or 17-year-old, Huckleberry Finn was one of my school readers. And I was struck even at a young yeah. age by the skewering comments that he got away with about society. And then, of course, Harriet Beecher Stowe wrote Uncle Tom's Cabin in a similar tone. For us, we look at this intellectual prowess as a pride point, but it's not really actionable anymore. It feels a little bit forced. We haven't all risen in a way that there's just not that level of cultural yeah. pride to be there. As a citizen of Harvard, we know about it, but like we're not proud of it per se because we're not like proud of the whole picture. Let's move on because one of the things we do need to talk about is around this notion of sport. And I mean, Australians, we're passionate about sport and the way that sport's organised in communities. And that's a topic that attracted your attention. So how does sport work in Hartford, Connecticut? You can't talk about Connecticut without talking about race and class. And sport became, for us in the 80s, really culturally defining, no different than lots of American communities in the arms race of professional sports teams. And we had this team, the Hartford Whalers, and it was for a lot of broad brush, the boomer generation. This was the cultural heyday of Connecticut and Hartford specifically. So the Hartford Whalers played in the NHL, first time Connecticut's really on this national stage. We have the team through the 80s and they are 
kind of the back end before my time even, but the merchandise lives on and everybody talks about the whalers and in particular, economic development professionals in Connecticut still talk about the whalers. They still plan for the return of the NHL. It's just this terribly misguided thinking. It's this idea that a sports team will be the silver bullet to define our culture here. And all of it is just broken old thinking. Ice cream scoop on top of ice cream scoop of a mess, right? It's just a mess. Right after the Whalers leave, the governor tries to bring in the Patriots, which, as you know, live in Foxborough, Massachusetts, or maybe you don't. Most people know who the Patriots are, I feel like, at this point. So on the back of being spurned by the Whalers, Connecticut bends over backwards trying to bring the New England Patriots to Hartford, Connecticut. Little did they realize they were really just being used to get a sweet deal from Connecticut that they could leverage into a better deal in Massachusetts. They never really had any intention of leaving, and Connecticut were suckers at the end of the day. They had a parade, they had all this paraphernalia and merchandise about the Hartford Patriots and all this stuff, right? All this fanfare. And it's all ridiculous. At no point did anybody in Connecticut seemingly question, why do we want this? Or who are we? None of these fundamental questions were ever asked because it was always just a political exercise. It was always about building a monument to the ego, to the election campaign of whatever mayor, governor at that time. So Connecticut has a, Hartford specifically, a rich history as the capital city, a rich history of going after stadium projects and sports projects in election years which is egregiously irresponsible because stadiums are inherently multi-generational projects. They do become these monolithic structures, physical structures that you need to build around in perpetuity, right? There's no undoing a stadium built. So it's very important how you go about doing this and deciding six months before your election campaign that we should build a stadium to galvanize support for my campaign it's just awful. And to be fair, it's not just Hartford, yeah. Connecticut. There are too many cities and communities in the USA to mention that have been spurned by professional sporting clubs or courted by professional sporting clubs to build a home base. I should actually say too, Thomas, I did read a rather excellent piece in Sports yeah. Illustrated that describes the story you just told about the Pats. So I'll put that on the show notes as well. There's an interesting question, and we'll come back to it later, that point about how you decide where there is a community benefit. How does government decide sure. that this is a good investment? At what point does a community benefit turn into either isolated or a pattern of rent-seeking by a particular industry or franchise? It's unique to every market. Every market has different motivations, different goals. And look, you can have a commercial capitalist sporting operation that is smart and successful. Some of them can be developed in a way that it's good for both parties, but that's not really the norm. Governments are just not equipped to really, truly analyze the impact of this work. You just can't plan a sports project or a stadium project in a month's time. It's just deeply irresponsible. And what they do, though, is they're able to allure the general public with the glitz and glamour of some sporting event without having to explain what that sporting team would mean to the community. Like, what are the actual value? What does that team represent? Why are we picking this team? 
So there's a couple of different ways you skin this cat, right? Like, are you approaching this through the lens of developing a venue or are you starting from a place of a user group? You may have an existing venue and now you're looking to redevelop or grow that, which is this couple, a case in Hartford. And then there's other examples where you're just building from scratch for a commercial entity. And that's an entirely different kind of deal. We had both situations in Hartford within the last five years. In one situation, we wanted to recruit a minor league baseball team to the city of Hartford. And in doing so, the city taxpayers ended up paying $70 million for a minor league baseball team, that a new stadium for that team that is the best minor league baseball team in the entire country. Because who would spend $70 million on a minor league baseball team? It's mind-boggling. It's crazy. Is that the beautifully named Dunkin' Donuts Stadium? It is the Dunkin' Donuts Stadium. The entire process, start to finish, is horrendous. We took the team, recruited the team from a community that's nine miles south of us. Why are we competing with a community nine miles away from us? In addition to us having an enormous capital expense project of building a dedicated busway from the two communities directly, just made no sense. And the more cynical side of this that's just painful is Hartford taxpayers are 70% black and brown with a median household income of about $28,000 a year. Those people are paying for the $70 million stadium to bring in a billionaire minor league sports team owner to just live in effectively rent-free. So you've created this white tourist destination for suburban people that's being paid for by black and brown people of the city itself. And what you're doing is you're creating a system of poverty that is inescapable. There's no lifting yourself up by your bootstraps. And when I went to these public forums, there was one guy who came up, he's like, I've lived in Hartford my whole life. He's an older black guy. He's like, I can't sell my house if I wanted to because the mortgage and the taxes, you buried me. And while that was happening, the director of development services was just a guy from a different city that was recruited, that came in, thinks he knows everything, is older white guy, experienced, quote unquote, economic development professional. He's looking at his Blackberry, literally a Blackberry at the time, just couldn't care less what this guy had to say. That level of disconnect is how you get multi-generational poverty. It's all wrapped in racist tropes. Can I go back a step? One of the things you said that yeah. really touched me, I'm interested in your thoughts on this. You mentioned there was a dedicated bus lane built to facilitate, oh, yeah. presumably, the transfer. Now, wouldn't that also imply that if public transport money is spent on that project, there's an opportunity cost for other projects that are now not done? Yeah, that's, that's definitely true. I think the bigger implication is that we are sister communities where there's a level of collaboration between communities that should exist. The city of Hartford at the time was like, oh, well, they were looking to leave that city anyway. Well, you should have said, no, you're not coming here. We're friends in New Britain. And now you've created this rivalry. And also the people of New Britain do not like this team anymore, this yard goats team, because it was effectively stolen from them. They built up the demand for the team and then Hartford took it from them. And then New Britain is left holding the bag of the investment of now an older stadium that is effectively unoccupied. So all of it isn't great. There's no good answer here. And it's all politically motivated by temporary mayors. 
actually, I wasn't expecting we were going to go so far down that path of the Yard Goats and Dunkin' Donuts State. No, don't apologise. But yeah. let's go now to where we were before at Colt Park and Dillon Stadium. Sure. And let's start with your involvement, which, as I recall, commenced in about 2013. What's going on with Dillon Stadium and Colt Park? This is the flip of the first example. In the Jar of Goats example, it was flat land. They had a team. This is the idea. This is how you're going to do it. In the Dillon Stadium, Colt Park area, it was different. There is a public park stadium that lives or a stadium that existed on a public park that was built back in 1935 for the schools that existed. It is now privatized for the purpose of a minor league stadium. So it's a different approach, a different rationale, and there's different measures of success. The Yard Goats project was largely considered an economic development project. This is also considered an economic development project. None of them are looking really at culture at all, community development, cultural development, but they're different models that can work in different ways. That said, I approached the city back in 2013 around the idea of like, Connecticut is 3 million people across 169 towns. What it doesn't have is any sort of county government. It doesn't have any sort of regional government. It doesn't have a lot of regional assets in general. It doesn't have a lot of affinity for the city itself. Suburbia kind of tests the city because it's considered the black hole of public funding. So the thought process was in the absence of all of this, why don't we build a premium venue in our city to build cultural pride for both the city and the region So when you have 169 towns and small high schools, you don't have a lot of amenities that you'd have by having a bigger population, like the investment isn't worth it. So in my high school, for instance, we didn't have lights on your sports field. Well, the ripple of not having lights on your sports field is every game for your high school is at three o'clock in the afternoon, right after school, because you can't play at night. When that happens, your parents aren't involved, your grandparents are involved. So you don't have that level of attendance. You don't have that level of generational continuity between the investment of the school. You're not attracting people to the community because of your school assets and infrastructure. So with the idea of going to Dillon Stadium was and building one premium asset was you can bring these smaller suburban schools into the city at that premium asset and build the need and support for it while also just having short-term solution for those communities. That was the original thought process behind redeveloping this underutilized asset. At the same time, I was really interested in women's professional soccer. The reason why is I grew up in an era where in the 1990s, UConn women's basketball, University of Connecticut women's basketball, effectively, if you ask anybody from Connecticut, built women's basketball for the world. There's a few different innovations that occurred with UConn women's basketball that has made Connecticut a global leader in women's basketball, like hands down. For me, we should have a legit monument of a basketball stadium dedicated to women's basketball for what that program has done for the world. That said, Connecticut is predisposed to supporting women's sports. Growing up, in no way was it weird to be a teenage boy cheering for women's sports. That's the era I grew up in. We loved UConn basketball. At the same time, as the UConn women's collegiate success was the 1999 Women's World Cup. The Women's World Cup coach was Anthony DiCicco, a Connecticut native. And a player on the team was also Connecticut native, Christine Lilly. Two amazing people who were trailblazers. And again, 
here I am in high school watching both UConn women's basketball and the 99 team. We all love Mia Hamm. That entire team, you can name them all. Every single one of them was an amazing role model around fighting for basic respect for women's sports in general. So we, we're all huge fans, and women's soccer has turned into an amazing vehicle for social change. Credit to the 99 everybody before that who have fought to equal access and equal facilities, to equal airtime, to equal pay, to just the fundamental basis. So Connecticut were right for that. The thought process was, what if you made a regional asset for this park for both these high school local needs, but also install a women's team there that now is the cherry on top of all of those values that we're describing. So that was what I brought to the table for the venue. And then unfortunately, it went south. Just quickly, to be absolutely clear, the distinction between the culture of women's and men's soccer, how do you describe that? What's different? The simplest way that I would describe it is women don't fall down and not get back up. Women don't get knocked down on the soccer pitch and not get back up immediately. They don't roll around. There's none of that drama. It's pure fight. There's just a different reason why they're playing. That's the fundamental difference. There's a ripple effect of what that looks like and how we got here that I can certainly get on my soapbox for of why I appreciate it. You watch a women's game and it's a whole different animal. How are they organized from the genesis through to delivery of the highest level? What's the comparison there? You know, the number one distinction that I would say of the recruitment process or the development process of the American women's soccer, every woman that's in the National Women's Soccer League, which is the highest level of professional play in America and arguably the world, every single player is college educated. And that's really interesting because they need to have a backup plan because we're not quite there yet in terms of respecting them in a way that they are compensated fairly or correctly, we'll say. So you have players who are college educated, they're smart, they're scrappy, they're playing for a different reason. They're just a different value structure. Really the only inhibitor to their growth is how they're owned. All these teams are largely owned by very powerful rich men following the men's model where you need to have X million dollars to own a team. You need to have a network. You need to be vetted by this brotherhood that decides who gets to own teams. We're still in a place where women are in the sport still doing the best they can in the conditions that they're in. More female owners would liberate them to do exactly what they know is necessary to be successful. And they're just kind of operating in the construct of subtle oppression. What's been great about it, though, is even its infancy of the league that exists here is this past year has been so tumultuous. You've seen the coach turnover has been wild. They threw the commissioner out for all of these values-driven reasons. It's not money. Like Money is not the reason why you get a boot out of women's soccer. It's values, which is you're dealing an entirely different currency in the women's game. Thomas, thanks for talking. Next episode, we'll dig deeper into your legal action and we'll also explore some thinking that is not just important to Hartford, but for communities the world over in harnessing their own social capital to become more livable. Thanks for listening. This podcast is produced by Civic Mind, specialists in governance and ethics for local and state government agencies. To find out more, head to the website civicmind.com.au. And so you don't miss an episode, Make sure you subscribe to Making a Difference in your favourite podcast app. And if you like the episode, please leave me a five-star review. It really helps other people to find the show. I'm your host, Steve Cooper, and I'll speak to you next time.